Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Janet Benyon, welcome to the Almost Awakened podcast. How are you doing this morning? Great. Hello from Vermont. Yeah. Um, I want to just start off, start off maybe just by giving us kind of a brief intro about who you are, what your education is. Um, we're always going to have a conversation today about polyamory, polygamy, um, and perhaps just non-monogamy in general versus monogamy and some of the some of the data that that speaks to what's effective and what isn't. But start us off with a kind of a brief bio about yourself. All right. Um, well, I actually grew up in Utah, and uh, I started out in journalism, and then I uh, morphed into anthropology. I have a master's degree and a PhD in anthropology, and I've been studying uh, multiple love and alternative sexuality for 27 years, <laughs> 20, maybe 28, I can't remember, but I've uh, got five uh, books and uh, probably about two dozen articles, chapters and books on the subject of polygyny and polyamory now. I'm mostly known for my uh, work in Mormon fundamentalist polygamy. I just recently had an article, well, it's a chapter and book, it's about 30 pages, in uh, Paul Grave uh, publication on global Mormonism. And my expertise um, in, in the world is uh, fundamentalist uh, polygyny, where you know one man is married to multiple wives. So that's been my, my opus, my life work. Um, Polygamy in Primetime is probably my most well-known publication. But uh, lately, I've been interested in polyamory, and I spent a year in Europe looking at uh, primarily polyamory in Paris. And so just recently been accepted in a, a journal called Sexualities, looking at the application of network analysis on polyamory communities. So I'm excited about that. How's that? <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love. All that background, I've I've read a ton of stuff like uh, Sex at Dawn. Um, I've read Esther Perel, a couple of her books. Um, I'm I'm aware of the conversation, and I'm and I'm also aware that you know we live in a society that you know again wants agriculture um, and and some sort of permanent residency became uh, the impetus. We treated marriage differently as we went through history. And so we live in a society that seems to hold monogamy up on a pedestal. And, um, you know, the divorce rate, I, I, last time I heard, or at least the, what we always say is that there's a 50% divorce rate in our country. And I think there are issues that come with monogamy. I'm, I'm curious, maybe kind of as an opening question, what your thoughts are, since you've spent your whole life studying things other than monogamy as the counterculture, what your thoughts are on monogamy? Um, I'd love to hear what, you're, what you think about that. Well, it sounds like you've had a background in anthropology, Bill. Um, yeah, maybe a little bit about, about agriculture and in, in combination with monotheism, agriculture was yeah. the very thing that began to promote a monogamous mindset, uh, eliminating all other forms. And before that, you know, 
Uh, Native Americans had been practicing poly forms of marriage very successfully. Um, other cultures, most in, indigenous cultures had the mindset that you can divorce easily, you can uh, reconnect, you know, there's multiple loves, many loves, and that seems very realistic. And even in the uh, biological world, in the natural world, you can see that some critters are monogamous and some critters are uh, non-monogamous, like the one of our closest relatives, the bonobo's chimp. And so I began asking these questions a, a long time ago. Um, and, you know, um, many people who have been married and then compare that or in a monogamous relationship and then compare that with a, a polyamorous or a polygynous or polyandrous relationship have seen the difference. And uh, statistically speaking, um, monogamy has uh, quite a few abuses associated with it, you know, much more so than any kind of open, honest polyamory or um, polyform. But that being said, any relationship can work, you know, and everyone has the right to choose what's best for them. If you, if you do look at the numbers, we live in a world that practices as its prevalent form um, monogamous exogamous pair bond. In anthropology, that means that you marry someone outside your family group and you pair bond with them. Um, statistically speaking, even in a formal monogamous setting, you have cheating, you have uh, over time serial, serial monogamy. Uh, America is famous for that. So most Americans are not strictly monogamous anyway. You know, they may call it monogamy at the time, but then they divorce, remarry, or there's cheating on the side, which is a form of what I call polygyandry, where both males and females are dabbling on something outside that marriage form. And so strict monogamy is, is kind of rare, actually. And um, again, successful strict monogamy is, is really rare. So, um, you know, the, there's pros and cons to every form, but to... Uh, limited to monogamy, we, we find that there are significant abuses associated with monogamy. There's battery, there's uh, risks to women's rights in a strict traditional monogamous form. Betty Friedan in the Feminine uh, Mystique talked about these in the 1950s. So I think that healthier forms are that you have a choice. You know, you may be monogamy, you may you, or may, you may be attracted to monogamy, but you also may choose uh, a, a consenting form of poly that fits your needs. It's a beginning conversation, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I you know I want to I want to talk in a moment about different kinds of polyamory that are out there. Specifically, noting that some of them do involve religious coercion uh, at times. And, and that there are unhealthy, as you point to, there are un unhealthy facets of polygamy um, in patriarchal society and when religious coercion is involved. But I want to ask you on just one more question on monogamy, and then we'll hit some of this, this polyamory um, as a topic. But it, part of it is that we in a culture have said, like, this is the approved way. This is what we do. This is how we live our lives. Monogamy is the right thing to do. Um, so people don't generally feel unless they kind of wake up to the messiness of life and, and, you know, some of us do and some of us don't. Um, many of us in our culture just feel like monogamy is the only option you have. So my question is, is monogamy really, is it, is it working? Um, does that make sense? Is, does, I know it works for some, but what's the data in terms of 
are people happy and healthy? Would they prefer it to be another way if they felt other choices were safe and uh, encouraged to have options? Well, this has actually been recently studied comparing monogamy with polyforms. And basically the data says that there's no difference between the success of either one, okay? Uh, to be honest, there's not enough data, you know, on many of these polyforms because they're not open. And it's very difficult to find people who are quietly practicing polyforms. Um, in terms, let me just, you mentioned polygamy. In terms of the, the quality of life issues, like sustained relationships, equality in a partnership uh, or partnerships, um, I've studied this extensively. And I've actually looked at monogamous in Utah, monogamous families that are predominantly Mormon, because you mentioned religious involvement and po um, polygynous or polygamous forms that are religious as well. And in cases where there are the following factors, both monogamy and polygamy can be harmful to women and children. Those factors are geographic isolation, uh, male supremacy or rigid patriarchy involved in the family, um, where there is a job layoff or there's some risk to uh, the man's image of himself as God and king that, that tends towards uh, abuse of women and children when that happens. Um, and actually something that was remedied recently, one of my factors was it being illegal. If a form of marriage is illegal, such as polygyny has been until recently, um, then that exacerbates the problems. It removes these groups into hiding whether they're practicing polygyny or not, these fundamentalist groups are removed from society. They have a fear and loathing of government and society. And so that creates an atmosphere of abuse for women and children. And so if you have a combination plus father absence where a father can't be with every child. And so there's a tendency towards sex abuse in that case. Um, if you have all these factors, including poverty, overcrowding, um, then there's a tendency for that form to be abusive. Um, so again, when I compare monogamy and polygamy in the Mormon context, if it's containing male supremacy, uh, lack of female networking, um, uh, geographic isolation, illegality, then those forms are going to be harmful to the, the people involved. Um, I hope that helps a little bit. But the, the, the question of whether one form is better than the other I can't really help you with that. All I can show you is that if you have the content of a good family, which is loving, um, a loving environment where there's equity and um, everyone's needs are cared for in terms of nutrition and uh, open communication and, and uh, fostering of love, it doesn't matter what form it is. It could be a gay family. It could be a blended family. It could be a poly family or a monogamous family social psychologists, and in my work, I have realized that this is the truth, that one size of marriage and family doesn't fit all. And so if the content is, is correct, with all that loving environment that I just described, then the form is irrelevant. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. Um, one listener, and again, this is, this is kind of, I, I agree with you, but this is a listener who's poking back at that and feels like on some level, all polygamy is, is there's something, there's a, there's a balance uh, um, impropriety. There, especially that way. There's a there's an improper balance. There is 
um, coercion at times. But I, I agree with you. If we look across the globe, both in the current moment as well as across the expanse of time, there have been a multitude of ways in which uh, tribes of people have um, determined that they would live out their relationships. And so the one listener said, I will never change my mind on it. It's all about males having power over women. We grasp that when relig religious coercion is involved, when patriarchy is the predominant culture, it is easy for polygamy to be about power. Um, but my hunch is that as I'm pointing to just what I've read, and I'm sure that you're, you've got some ideas too, and, and other places in the world where these things happen, but there's other types of polyamory going on. Some of it's non-religious at all. Some of it occurs in other societies that perhaps includes uh, multiple women and one man, that there are differences of how that power is distributed and what levels of equality exist. Maybe talk to us for a moment about some of that research or at least some of that data that's out there. Okay, first I've got to go back to polygamy before I go to polyamory. Look, I started out believing like your viewer who just commented that all polygamy is evil because it's patriarchal and men are in control. And then I actually lived in the community. I started out living in an all red group, which is actually more progressive than the FLDS or the Kingston group. And then I lived in the LeBarons. The recent LeBarons are also um, less patriarchally rigid. But in this all red group that I lived with, I found out that women were in charge you know, and they were blessing using the priesthood, uh, their own children and others. And then they had um, all these powers. The midwife was really the one that was in charge of the whole community. And I recognized that formally they were still using the priesthood and patriarchy as their template. But, you know, the matchmaking and a lot of things that was, were happening, even uh, microeconomics were done by women. And I realized, woo, you know, there's many faces of polygamy. You know, look at Brady Williams family, you know, my five wives. I've, I've known the Williams family for years. Uh, they were primary informants of mine and primary subjects for years. And that's a very different kind of polygamy. It's a progressive polygamy where women um, join in that family because they are fully with their own consent. They desire to be linked to a, a man who's, who's actually pretty progressive in his thinking. You know, he's a Buddhist. He has no qualms about saying that the women are in charge. These women are highly educated. They're all adults. They work well with each other. Their friendships with each other give them strength. And there's a womanist kind of ethic. And I found this to be true with African-American women who are joining a Muslim-based polygyny of their own accord because they find very few good men out there. And so they've agreed to share this good man and then in the process, they build up this female friendship, a, a network that helps them. So let me just say, after 28 years of studying polygamy, I can say that your viewer is narrow-minded, sorry, but there's many faces of feminism. There's many faces of polygamy. And you have to open up your mind and read some of my books to show you that some polygamy is good for women. Much polygamy is bad for women, but open up your mind. As far as polyamory, wow, what can I say? It's great for women. <laughs> the polyamory that I have studied um, has shown an enormous potential for freedom for women and queer folk. Um, the study that I just uh, completed in um, Paris was a social network application showing that 
the most strength and centrality and area of influence in that community was cisgendered uh, females, trans females, bisexual, pansexual females. So it was a very good place to be female. So, you know, in comparison, polyamory has greater um, opportunities for women to find their sexual freedom, their voice, um, their area of choice. And so uh, definitely that has been studied. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Again, um, I know like in the book, uh, Sex at Dawn, in the book, as I'm sitting here reading the book, I'm fascinated because I'm not aware of all of this, uh, all of these societies, these tribes, these various social organizations um, that are pro- that are practicing something other than strict monogamy. Um, and as you point out, most of us even here in this country are serial monogamous. We simply move on from one monogamous relationship to another. Um, it, it's 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 quite eye opening um, to see that all across the globe and across the expanse of time, we humans have been doing this thing in very different ways. Um, are you, are you aware of any like specific um, tribes or uh, societies perhaps outside of our Western uh, awareness that, that are doing something other than monogamy in it. And it seems to be working really successfully and seems to give this balance of power and equality that you're speaking of. Well, there's so many examples, you know, throughout the Native American experience, the Shoshone, the Cheyenne, the Sioux, we're all practicing sororal polygyny and some fraternal polyandry where somebody marries two sisters or somebody marries two two brothers. The two sisters idea was based on a woman's choice. She felt that her sister had lost her husband or her sister was not being uh, involved in any relationship. And for survival, she asked her husband to marry her sister so they could be a family unit and work together to the benefit of the women, you know, and that kind of thing was negotiated. You know, um, also the Kumbush people of the Kalahari practice that still today, um, where a, a form of uh, polygyny or polyandry or polyamory is accepted so that these many loves can be a functional unit for economic reasons, but also for the realization for the Kungits, they have these trial marriages and they realize sometimes one person is not enough to fulfill one's needs. And so they adopt another spouse and it's with full support of the community. In uh, Tibet, um, Nepal, they practice polyandry where a woman marries more than, uh, or she marries several brothers in order to keep the land from being partitioned out because the land is scarce in those terraced farms environments. And so it's a very practical form of marriage that fits the needs of these people. So those are just a small sampling of cross-cultural polyforms. But polyamory itself, you can find it in Berlin, New York, Burlington, Vermont, where I live. Uh, San Francisco is one of the best examples. They have the, the, the long tradition of a more contemporary since the, well, since the 50s, a form of polyamory and open love. Um, And right now there's tens of thousands of polyamorous in the San Francisco or Bay Area practicing and adjusting and experimenting with this this form of marriage and relationship. Yeah, I think regardless of how you do it, relationships are difficult and they're messy. And we, 
we'd like to say like I should be able to just meet all the needs of another human being. But the reality is that on some level, even if you're in a monogamous relationship and that's working, nobody meets all the needs of another human being. Um, I'm, I want to ask, you know, you've been a big proponent of the decriminalization of, of uh, polygamy or, or making other facets of non-monogamy um, legal. And, and I want to hear from you on what you saw as the benefit, because as you point out, some of this has happened recently. And, and I think it raises lots of questions, of course, whether we're talking tax law and how, um, how children um, – how the legal status of children is handled if there's a split up and vice, you know, those kinds of things that are going on. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the decriminalization of polygamy or polyamory or any other form of non-monogamy and what you see as the, the strength of argument of that position. Cause I agree with you, but I, I want the listeners to get a feel for why it was important for us to move this direction. Well, first making something illegal creates a whole criminal base. We found that out with prohibition. We know that's true with marijuana, um, prostitution. We should legalize all those things, right? So pol polygamy is one of those things that should be fully legal. And decriminalization is the first step because when you render something like that illegal, <clears throat> it creates such a stigma that those who practice it have to go into hiding. And that's where they are subjected to abuse, being under the thumb of a patriarch. Uh, without access to social services, to a, a social network. They're isolated. Um, they ex they're at, at risk for, like I said, abuse, economic hardship, what I call circumscription. These women in these desert communities or these remote mountain communities that have no access to the mainstream are at risk for wife battery, uh, for economic hardship. And circumscription is a term that, that I use in much of my writing. It's where you are barricaded geographically from being able to access secular education, a driver's license, uh, you know, so these women can't ex escape. So if you're in a negative, poor functioning polygamous environment and you're in a remote area because of the illegality of it, you're not gonna be able to access help. And so the first step is to decriminalize the, the, the issue and they successfully did that and it's not that I'm in favor of patriarchy or rigid male supremacy or uh, these, these um, rigid fundamentalist societies. What I'm in favor of is options, free consenting adults making options, making choices about their sexuality, about how they wanna raise their children. And if there is abuse, if there is crime, if there is money laundering or, or um, uh, welfare fraud, or people uh, gathering guns, or abusing uh, their spouse, these will be de dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis, because I'll tell you what, these problems are in monogamy as well. So it should never be a situation where polygamy per se, or polyforms of marriage per se, are rendered criminal. Never, you know, that, that's, that's against the constitution. What should be the case is that every individual is responsible for being a good citizen. And if that individual is breaking the law, not because of their religion, not because of their culture, but because individually they're breaking the law, they should be arrested. They should be incarcerated. So you're right. I am fighting for decriminalization on a lot of fronts. If we're able to do this in Utah, 
think about how long-standing polyamory families say in the Berkeley area, who I know couples are not couples, but uh, trios or quads who've been together for 30 years, successfully raising their children. Now they have grandchildren. They would like to have the legal benefits afforded to people everywhere. Uh, the rights to visit a loved one in hospital, the rights of inheritance, the rights to be considered a family so they can be protected against stigma. I think that's progressive. Awesome. I, uh, I want to ask one more question uh, in this regard. And then I want to talk a little bit. I, I've actually had the chance to um, be in the home of, to have dinner with one of the leaders of the Centennial Park group. And I've had exposure. I live here in St. George, Utah. I've had exposure to uh, fundamentalists coming in um, uh, to my shop. I've had the exposure of members of Centennial Park coming in. And I've had a chance to kind of watch the differences just in those two groups that are so closely related. And yet there are stark significant differences, as you kind of pointed to earlier. Um, but I do want to ask, um, in terms of like, do we know of societies that are out there or have been in the past? Is there any data out there that points to any non-monogamy societies that were matriarchal that that had um, the power kind of hinging on the women and it was the women that kind of oversaw how these societies formed and ran well you probably know some of the answers to that since you're so good at anthropology and history bill but you know pre-state societies were very favorable to a female driven um, political organization female driven ideologies where women were priestesses and um, where goddesses were worshipped. So this was, this was the norm rather than the anomaly. Um, but since then, there, you know, with colonization and the growth of state systems, as um, Engels, Frederick Engels pointed out in his seminal piece on, on the introduction of the state and private property, you get a reduction of these kinds of female empowering forms. And so they're very rare. Um, one, um, well, there's a couple of, there's a handful of exceptions. The, the Mbuti pygmy uh, population of the, the hunters and gatherers in the Congo had an androgynous form of life where um, women were responsible for mothering the first year of their, uh, the child's existence and then the fathers took over. And so the fathers were the caregivers and the mothers were the hunters. And so you have a kind of a reverse scenario you also, um, Margaret Mead studied the Chambuli of New Guinea, where they had a reverse philosophy where women were the breadwinners. They were the ones to um, be the strong, physical, muscular people. And the, the men were slight of structure, non-muscular, and they were the gossipers. And so you have those kinds of societies. One of the best quasi-matriarchal or matrilineal societies is the Dene, the Navajo. They have a rite of passage for women called the Canal Day, where they um, actually have a recognition of women who go through their first period, their menarche, and that these are celebrated and revered and almost worshipped for their intense medicine. And then the matrilineage trace, traces the line of descent through women. The women are the leaders. Um, if a woman wants to divorce a husband, she just simply puts his clothing outside the hogan and that's it. He's no longer a part of her family. You know, so there was there's some some groups such as these that are considered matrilineal, mostly Native Americans. Um, they were approaching uh, the sort of matriarchal community you're talking about. And 
they allowed for polyamory or polyforms of marriage. Yeah, it's also, you know, you were mentioning uh, the bonobos earlier. It's, it's interesting as you get into uh, the other primate families um, and as you get into, you know, the, the gorillas and how uh, the biggest gorilla essentially gets his way, whatever he wants, you know. And so all of these women are kind of under the, the powerful gorilla. But as you pointed earlier, the bonobos uh, practice a very open relationships among their species. And there's, there's little to no violence among them. Um, the other one that's kind of the opposite, I think, is the gibbons. If I'm not mistaken, they have um, almost completely a monogamous lifetime relationship with, with another you know, male, female. And they also have no violence among them. Whereas the gorillas, I, I, you know, the gorillas are are known for uh, their violence. It's interesting as you even watch how evolution is played out among um, among our our primate cousins, uh, how these types of uh, challenges of relationships are even worked out among among other species other than just human beings. Well, you really you set a good template for understanding the human condition. Look at the primates. In nature, there's choices. You know, you can actually look at the gibbons, nonviolent monogamous, the bonobos, which are more polyamorous uh, and bisexual, <laughs> pansexual perhaps. And then you've got um, the common chimp, which is polygynous. And you mentioned the gorilla, but we're more closely related to the common chimp. So that's a better example of a polygynous, patriarchal, rigid form of marriage uh, with alpha male. And so you get that you know, kind of almost, um, maybe you can find that in Mormon fundamentalist polygyny where you have the alpha male who's the God King and a rigidly controlling in some cases, not all, but controlling the females who are uh, subservient. And so some of those Mormon fundamentalist examples would follow the common chimp. So yeah, in nature and in the human condition, you have a variety of forms. To suggest that there's just one form is rather limited, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We've got a few minutes left. I, I, when I went to this dinner at the home of a leader of the Centennial Park group, I I had made a lot of assumptions in my head about that what that was going to look like. And I, I um, had assumed that the women would be less educated. I had assumed that the women would have very little... Uh, say or influence on how uh, the family dynamics worked at the end of the day. Like at the end of the day, this guy is in charge and, and you know, he has uh, within their religious framework has priesthood authority, priesthood power, stewardship. But what I experienced was a very different thing. The daughters were very outspoken. They were intelligent. They were educated. They were very um, uh, conversational, um, very, I just, they just were well-read, uh, well-educated, very smart kids. And as they were entering kind of uh, their middle teenage years or older teenage years and were entering kind of this dating phase, they had a lot of, if not the stronger position of say and and who they dated and, and who they pursued and what those relationships look like. Um, I, I think all of us have to test our assumptions. I think that's a big part of all of us growing up is to continue learning and to continue challenging uh, the things that that we suppose or the things that we've been taught by our parents or our culture or the society or systems that we grow up in. And, and I'm curious, maybe just as we kind of have maybe five minutes left, your thoughts on what it does for people when you give them choices, when you 
insert somehow balance of, of equality from um, each participant in a society or in a family or in a tribe and your thoughts, because you've been pointing to it the whole episode, which is give people choices. Maybe talk for a moment. Maybe this would be a great place to just kind of close out is to just talk about what it means to give people choices and how they navigate relationships that we shouldn't be giving shame to folks who choose something other than the approved monogamy that we have in our society, but give people the freedom to decide what works best for them and what kind of benefits come from that. Well, sure. Um, first, let me just make a mention. You you talked about Centennial Park and I've been talking about the All Red Group. And in both cases, I think there was a shift uh, where um, people were unhappy with the rigid control of Warren Jeffs and so they, and the lost, um, men and boys that were ostracized. And so they created this perhaps more progressive form of uh, the FLDS. At the same time, the um, Allred group was going through a shift too with Owen Allred at the helm years ago when I first started studying polygamy. And he came out with some pr pretty progressive things. He wasn't perfect, but he talked about how um, it's okay for, for women to get um, higher education. It's okay for people to dress like the mainstream and interact with the mainstream. And it's perfectly, uh, it's a good thing for the age of marriage to be anything over 18, not 16, not 15, not 14. And so he was kind of for the time instilling some progressive evolving characteristics that gave people more choice, especially women. And did the women leave the group? No, <laughs> women. more women came into the group because of it. And because those choices were being opened up, women were attracted to it. Now, why are women attracted to polygyny and poly, uh, uh, polygamy? It's because they want to be uh, able to be working with other women. And I, I wanted to make that clear. Monogamy alienates some women, okay? If you were raised around a lot of women and you have that religious ethic, you know, if suddenly you're alienated in a monogamous uh, relationship with your husband, putting you under his thumb all the time, you miss your female cohorts, your sisters. And so polygamy is attractive to many women because they wanna be around other women. As far as opening up to choice, this is what I've studied and experienced, is that when you provide more options, especially for people who've been marginalized, such as women and um, people of color, um, queer folk, if you have experienced that marginalization, there's nothing so beautiful as being opened up to choice. So with polyamory, which overlaps a great deal with queerness, with the queer community, um, you find that people are um, basking in this newfound freedom of being able to uh, have the choices to have um, more than one partner if, if that suits their needs. And to open up the concept of love that is more than just eros, but it is agape. It is love of neighbor and being able to uh, give a neighbor a hug without the stigma of, oh, you know, you're married, you can't hug other people or providing a more open form of love that uh, fosters a nurturing community, engaging in the community in a new way um, rather than restricting people. So I believe in, um, decriminalization of all these marriage forms. I believe in opening up and reducing the stigma that cultures have against gays, lesbians, 
bisexuals, pansexuals, non-binary, and polyamory. I've added the extra P to the queer community. And so it's not just pansexuals, it's poly that I've been promoting at conferences to open up the freedoms for all people and be inclusive. That's my two cents. Yeah. One last thing and I'll let you go. Um, again, I'm aware of, I think state of affairs, which is Esther Pearl. I'm aware of sex at dawn. Um, uh, civilized to death is another book that goes into some of that data. Uh, there are other books out there. I'm just curious if there's any other resources. If somebody goes, look, I've, I've grew up in a believing that monogamy is the only way to do things. I'd like to open my eyes up to the data and to see these stories and to become aware of um, how other people do this, how, what other ways there are to think about it. And maybe I can start deconstructing my own thinking process. What are some other sources you would point people towards? Well, start with ethical slut. That's the, that's the first step. Good book. First, yeah. Really. You know, and there's so much out there. There's a new book called Compersion by a friend of mine um, that I recommend. Those are two good uh, volumes that I would recommend. Um, and all you have to do is Google. There's so much poly uh, literature out there. Um, and uh, you're free to uh, access my article on uh, Paris and poly. Um, it's available right now as a working paper, SSSRN, but just Google my name and polyamory and you'll begin to see some of that work. But uh, yeah, Ethical Slut is really one of the first best views of um, what that looks like. Uh, you know, and the title may be unfortunate because people think, what, slut? But what they're looking at is introducing a concept of honest, open, loving relationships. And it goes much, much more than just sexuality. It relates to how we interact with each other. And consent honest, open relationship is something that may be um, one way to make things easier for people, you know, so that when they're feeling, well, this is not really working out, but if this could be incorporated, maybe we can salvage all relationships. So as a, opposed to just simply cutting people off through divorce or through anger and hardship, maybe we've got another way of doing things. You know, one thing that my um, my ex-husband and I did is we adopted each other after the divorce as cousins in the Indian way. He's Native American. And I think that this is a fabulous way to look at it, which relates to the poly community ethic, too. Instead of just cutting off those that you have, well, divorced or broken up with, change the nature of your relationship, become cousins or something like that. And so that you can always cherish each other, even if in a different form. Yeah. I, I love it, Janet. I love, so again, today we've been speaking with Janet Binion. Um, I've appreciated your time. I've appreciated the chance to have you on. Uh, I think listeners to this podcast, um, the idea is that we just start deconstructing the labels and the, um, the way, the patterns of thinking, the things we've been just handed and said, here it is, this is the way it works. And you begin to challenge those things and you start to listen to the data and our minds, no matter what the subject is, we just expand and start to think differently. Um, I appreciate your time today and grateful for the, the conversation, my friend. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Have a great day. <clears throat> so uh, I just want to reach out, just listeners. Uh, Mikkel wasn't with us today. Uh, she had to work. And so middle of the week or so, she let me know that she wasn't going to be available uh, for this episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I would really recommend listeners that you do grab uh, the book 
Uh, Sex at Dawn, uh, The Ethical Slut that she mentioned. Um, that's a great one. Uh, State of Affairs by Esther Pearl uh, is another great book. Um, these are books that, um, so the, the Sex at Dawn book was written by Christopher Ryan, uh, as well as um, his wife, let me pull up her name here, uh, Allison Johnson. And then there's also, I guess, a Jonathan Davis is the, the reader of the book on Audible. But you, the book is fascinating. And um, I, I think we, we all were handed a way to see the, the, the rightness of how we humans behave. And the reality is that if we look across other species, if we look across the human species, across the expanse of geography in the present moment, as well as across the expanse of time, you'll see that how relationships are negotiated is very different from people to people. And um, I'm not I'm not recommending or encouraging something other than monogamy, other than I, I think Janet hits the nail on the head, which is that people deserve choices and people deserve to seek out ways that best fill their lives with happiness and joy um, with, without feeling like it has to look a certain way. Um, and without hurting people, uh, I, I'm a big advocate that no matter how we live out our life, we do it without causing damage or hurting others uh, to the best of our ability, um, that we don't manipulate, that we don't um, coerce, that we don't shame or guilt people for showing up differently. And I think that's the value of, of understanding the diversity among humanity. So uh, appreciate everybody uh, being here today. And uh, I'm glad that uh, for all of you who listened, uh, Janet Benyon uh, was, was kind enough to give us some of her time and to talk about some of these, these ideas. And so with that, uh, we'll see all of you next week. This has been the Almost Awakened podcast. I can't wait, Mikkel, for you to be back with us. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 